Chapter Fourteen of Joe's Boys. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susie G. Joe's Boys by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Fourteen. Plays at Plumfield. As it is as impossible for the humble historian of the March family to write a story without theatricals in it, as for our dear Miss Young to get on with less than twelve or fourteen children in her interesting tales, we will accept the fact, and at once cheer ourselves after the last afflicting events by proceeding to the Christmas plays at Plumfield, for they influence the fate of several of our characters and cannot well be skipped. When the college was built, Mr. Lorry added a charming little theatre which not only served for plays, but declamations, lectures, and concerts. The drop curtain displayed Apollo, with the muses grouped about him, and as a compliment to the donor of the hall, the artist had given the god a decided resemblance to our friend, which was considered a superb joke by everyone else. Home talent furnished stars, stock company, orchestra, and scene-painter, and astonishing performances were given on this pretty little stage. Mrs. Joe had been trying for some time to produce a play which should be an improvement upon the adaptions from the French then in vogue, curious mixtures of fine toilettes, false sentiment, and feeble wit, with no touch of nature to redeem them. It was easy to plan plays full of noble speeches and thrilling situations, but very hard to write them. So she contented herself with a few scenes of humble life in which the comic and pathetic were mingled. And, as she fitted her characters to her actors, she hoped the little venture would prove that truth and simplicity had not entirely lost their power to charm. Mr. Lorry helped her and they called themselves Beaumont and Fletcher, enjoying their joint labor very much, for Beaumont's knowledge of dramatic art was of great use in curbing Fletcher's too aspiring pen, and they flattered themselves that they had produced a neat and effective bit of work as an experiment. All was ready now, and Christmas Day was as much enlivened by last rehearsals, the panics of timid actors, the scramble for forgotten properties, and the decoration of the theatre. Evergreen and holly from the woods, blooming plants from the hothouse on Parnassus, and flags of all nations made it very gay that night, in honour of the guests who were coming, chief among them Miss Cameron, who kept her promise faithfully. The orchestra tuned their instruments with unusual care, the scene-shifters set their stage with lavish elegance, the prompter heroically took his seat in the stifling nook provided for him, and the actors, dressed with trembling hands that dropped the pins, and perspiring brows whereon the powder wouldn't stick. Beaumont and Fletcher were everywhere, feeling that their literary reputation was at stake, for sundry friendly critics were invited, and reporters, like mosquitoes, cannot be excluded from any earthly scene, be it a great man's deathbed, or a dime museum. "'Has she come?' was the question asked by every tongue behind the curtain, and when Tom, who played an old man, 
endangered his respectable legs among the footlights to peep, announced that he saw Miss Cameron's handsome head in the place of honour, a thrill pervaded the entire company, and Josie declared with an excited gasp that she was going to have stage fright for the first time in her life. "'I'll shake you if you do,' said Mrs. Joe, who was in such a wild state of dishevelment with her varied labours that she might have gone on as Madge Wildlife without an additional rag or crazy elf-lock. "'You'll have time to get your wits together while we do our piece. We are old stagers and calm as clocks,' answered Demi, with a nod towards Alice, ready in her pretty dress and all her properties at hand. But both clocks were going rather faster than usual, as heightened color, brilliant eyes, and a certain flutter under the laces and velvet coat betrayed. They were to open the entertainment with a gay little piece which they had played before, and did remarkably well. Alice was a tall girl, with dark hair and eyes, and a face which intelligence, health, and a happy heart made beautiful. She was looking her best now, for the brocades, plumes, and powder of the Marquise became her stately figure, and Demi, in his court suit, with sword, three-cornered hat, and white wig, made as gallant a baron as one would wish to see. Josie was the maid, and looked her part to the life, being as pretty, pert, and inquisitive as any French soubrette. These three were all the characters, and the success of the piece depended on the spirit and skill with which the quickly changing moods of the quarrelsome lovers were given, their witty speeches made to tell, and by-play suited to the courtly period in which the scene was laid. Few would have recognized sober John and studious Alice in the dashing gentleman and coquettish lady, who kept the audience laughing at their caprices, while they enjoyed the brilliant costumes, and admired the ease and grace of the young actors. Josie was a prominent figure in the plot, as she listened at keyholes, peeped into notes, and popped in and out at all the most inopportune moments, with her nose in the air, her hands in her apron pockets, and curiosity pervading her little figure from the topmost bough of her jaunty cap to the red heels of her slippers. All went smoothly, and the capricious Marquise, after tormenting the devoted Baron to her heart's content, owned herself conquered in the war of wits and was just offering the hand he had fairly won when a crash startled them, and a heavily decorated side-scene swayed forward, ready to fall upon Alice. Demi saw it and sprung before her to catch and hold it up, standing like a modern Samson with the wall of a house on his back. The danger was over in a moment, and he was about to utter his last speech, when the excited young scene-shifter, who had flown up a ladder to repair the damage, leaned over to whisper, "'All right!' and release Demi from his spread-eagle attitude. As he did so, a hammer slipped out of his pocket to fall upon the upturned face below, inflicting a smart blow and literally knocking the baron's part out of his head. A quick curtain robbed the audience of a pretty little scene not down on the bill, for the Marquise flew to staunch the blood with a cry of alarm. "'Oh, John, you're hurt! Lean on me!' which John gladly did for a moment, being a trifle dazed, yet quite able to enjoy the tender touch of the hands busied about him, and the anxiety of the face so near his own. For both told him 
something which he would have considered cheaply won by a rain of hammers, and the fall of the whole college on his head. Nan was on the spot in a moment, with the case that never left her pocket, and the wound was neatly plastered up by the time Mrs. Joe arrived, demanding tragically, "'Is he too hurt to go on again? If he is, my play is lost.' "'I'm all the fitter for it, Auntie, for here's a real instead of a painted wound. I'll be ready. Don't worry about me.' And catching up his wig, Demi was off, with only a very eloquent look of thanks to the Marquise who had spoiled her gloves for his sake, but did not seem to mind at all, though they reached above her elbows and were most expensive. "'How are your nerves, Fletcher?' asked Mr. Lorry as they stood together during the breathless minute before the last bell rings. "'About as calm as yours, Beaumont,' answered Mrs. Joe, gesticulating wildly to Mrs. Meg to set her cap straight. "'Bear up, partner. I'll stand by you, whatever comes. I feel that it ought to go.' for, though it's a mere trifle, a good deal of honest work and truth had gone into it. Doesn't Meg look the picture of a dear old countrywoman? She certainly did, as she sat in the farmhouse kitchen, by a cheery fire, rocking a cradle and donning stockings, as if she had done nothing else all her life. Grey hair, skillfully drawn lines on the forehead, and a plain gown with cap, little shawl, and check apron, changed her into a comfortable, motherly creature, who found favour the moment the curtain went up, and discovered her rocking, darning, and crooning an old song. In a short soliloquy about Sam, her boy, who wanted to enlist, Dolly, her discontented little daughter, who longed for city ease and pleasures, and poor Elaise, who had married badly and came home to die, bequeathing her baby to her mother, lest its bad father should claim it. The little story was very simply opened, and made effective by the real boiling of the kettle on the crane, the ticking of a tall clock, and the appearance of a pair of blue worsted shoes which waved fitfully in the air to the soft babble of a baby's voice. Those shapeless little shoes won the first applause, and Mr. Lorry, forgetting elegance and satisfaction, whispered to his coadjutor, "'I thought the baby would fetch them.' If the dear thing won't squall in the wrong place, we are saved. But it is risky. Be ready to catch it, if all Meg's cuddlings prove in vain," answered Mrs. Joe, adding, with a clutch at Mr. Lorry's arm as a haggard face appeared at the window, "'Here's Demi. Oh, I hope no one will recognize him when he comes on as the sun. I'll never forgive you for not doing the villain yourself. I can't run the thing and act too. He is capitally made up, and likes a bit of melodrama. This scene ought to have come later, but I wanted to show that the mother was the heroine as soon as possible. I'm tired of love-sick girls and runaway wives. We'll prove that there's a romance in old women also. Now he's coming." And in slouched a degraded-looking man, shabby, unshaven, and evil-eyed, trying to assume a masterful air as he dismayed the tranquil old woman by demanding his child. A powerful scene followed and Mrs. Meg surprised even those who knew her best by the homely dignity with which she at first met the man she dreaded. Then, as he brutally pressed his claim, she pleaded with trembling voice and hands to keep the little creature she had promised the dying mother to protect. And when he turned to take it by force, quite a thrill went through the house, 
as the old woman sprung to snatch it from the cradle, and holding it close, defied him in God's name to tear it from that sacred refuge. It was really well done, and the round of applause that greeted the fine tableau of the indignant old woman, the rosy, blinking baby clinging to her neck, and the daunted man, who dared not execute his evil purpose, was such a defender for helpless innocence, told the excited authors that their first scene was a hit. The second was quieter, and introduced Josie as a bonny country lass, setting the supper-table in a bad humour. The pettish way in which she slapped down the plates, hustled the cups, and cut the big brown loaf, as she related her girlish trials and ambitions, was capital. Mrs. Joe kept her eye on Miss Cameron, and saw her nod approval several times at some natural tone or gesture, some good bit of by-play, or a quick change of expression in the young face, which was as variable as an April day. Her struggle with the toasting-fork made much merriment, so did her contempt for the brown sugar, and the relish with which she sweetened her irksome duties by eating it. And when she sat, like Cinderella on the hearth, tearfully watching the flames dance on the homely room, a girlish voice was heard to exclaim impulsively, "'Poor thing! She ought to have some fun!' The old woman enters, and mother and daughter have a pretty scene, in which the latter coaxes and threatens, kisses and cries, till she wins the reluctant consent of the former to visit a rich relation in the city, and, from being a little thundercloud, Dolly becomes bewitchingly gay and good, as soon as her willful wish is granted. The poor old soul has hardly recovered from this trial when the sun enters, in army blue, tells he has enlisted and must go. That is a hard blow, but the patriotic mother bears it well, and not till the thoughtless young folks have hastened away to tell their good news elsewhere does she break down. Then the country kitchen becomes pathetic, as the old woman sits alone, mourning over her children, till the grey head is hidden in the hands as she kneels down by the cradle to weep and pray, with only baby to comfort her fond and faithful heart. Sniffs were audible all through the latter part of this scene, and when the curtain fell, people were so busy wiping their eyes that for a moment they forgot to applaud. That silent moment was more flattering than noise, and as Mrs. Joe wiped the real tears off her sister's face, she said as solemnly as an unconscious dab of rouge on her nose permitted, Meg, you have saved my play. Oh, why aren't you a real actress, and I a real playwright? <laughs> Don't gush now, dear, but help me dress Josie. She is in such a quiver of excitement, I can't manage her, and this is her best scene, you know. So it was, for her aunt had written it especially for her, and little Joe was happy in a gorgeous dress, with a train long enough to satisfy her wildest dreams. The rich relations' parlours was in festival array, and the country cousin sails in, looking back at her sweeping flounces with such artless rapture that no one had the heart to laugh at the pretty jay in borrowed plumes. She has confidences with herself in the mirror, from which it is made evident that she has discovered all is not gold that glitters, and has found greater temptations than those a girlish love of pleasure, luxury, and flattery bring her. 
She is sought by a rich lover, but her honest heart resists the allurements he offers, and in its innocent perplexity wishes mother was there to comfort and counsel. A gay little dance, in which Dora, Nan, Bess, and several of the boys took part, made a good background for the humble figure of the old woman in her widow's bonnet, rusty shawl, big umbrella, and basket. Her naive astonishment, as she surveys the spectacle, feels the curtains, and smooths her old gloves during the moment she remains unseen, was very good. But Josie's unaffected start when she sees her, and the cry, "'Why, there's mother!' was such a hearty little bit of nature, it hardly needed the impatient tripping over her train as she ran into the arms that seemed now to be her nearest refuge. The lover plays his part, and ripples of merriment greeted the old woman's searching questions and blunt answers during the interview, which shows the girl how shallow his love is, and how near she had been to ruining her life as bitterly as poor Eliza did. She gives her answer frankly, and when they are alone, looks from her own bedizened self to the shabby dress, work-worn hands, and tender face, crying with a repentant sob and kiss, "'Take me home, mother, and keep me safe. I've had enough of this.' "'That will do you good, Maria. Don't forget it,' said one lady to her daughter as the curtain went down, and the girl answered, "'Well, I'm sure I don't see why it's touching, but it is,' as she spread her lace handkerchief to dry. Tom and Nan came out strong in the next scene, for it was a ward in an army hospital, and surgeon and nurse went from bed to bed, feeling pulses, administering doses, and hearing complaints, with an energy and gravity which convulsed the audience. The tragic element, never far from the comic at such times and places, came in when, while they bandaged an arm, the doctor told the nurse about an old woman who was searching through the hospital for her son, after days and nights on battlefields, through ambulances, and among scenes which would have killed most women. "'She will be here directly,' and I dread her coming, for I'm afraid the poor lad who has just gone is her boy. I'd rather face a cannon than these brave women, with their hope and courage and great sorrow," says the surgeon. "'Oh, these poor mothers break my heart,' adds the nurse, wiping her eyes on her big apron. And with the words, Mrs. Meg came in. There was the same dress, the basket and umbrella the rustic speech, the simple manners. But all were made pathetic by the terrible experience which had changed the tranquil old woman to that haggard figure with wild eyes, dusty feet, trembling hands, and an expression of mingled anguish, resolution, and despair which gave the homely figure a tragic dignity and power that touched all hearts. A few broken words told the story of her vain search, and then the sad quest began again. People held their breath as, led by the nurse, 
she went from bed to bed, showing in her face the alternations of hope, dread, and bitter disappointment as each was passed. On a narrow cot was a long figure covered with a sheet, and here she paused to lay one hand on her heart and one on her eyes, as if to gather courage to look at the nameless dead. Then she drew down the sheet, gave a long, shivering sigh of relief, saying softly, Not my son, thank God, but some mother's boy. And stooping down, she kissed the cold forehead tenderly. Somebody sobbed there, and Miss Cameron shook two tears out of her eyes, anxious to lose no look or gesture as the poor soul, nearly spent with the long strain, struggled on down the line. But her search was happily ended, for, as if her voice had roused him from his feverish sleep, a gaunt, wild-eyed man sat up in his bed, and stretching his arms out to her, cried in a voice that echoed through the room, "'Mother! Mother! I knew you'd come to me!' She did go to him, with a cry of love and joy that thrilled every listener as she gathered him in her arms with the tears and prayers and blessing such as only a fond and faithful old mother could give. The last scene was a cheerful contrast to this, for the country kitchen was bright with Christmas cheer, the wounded hero, with black patch and crutches well displayed, sat by the fire in the old chair, whose familiar creak was soothing to his ear. Pretty Dolly was stirring about, gaily trimming dresser, settle, high chimney-piece, and old-fashioned cradle with mistletoe and holly, while the mother rested beside her son, with that blessed baby on her knee. Refreshed by a nap and nourishment, this young actor now covered himself with glory by his ecstatic prancings, incoherent remarks to the audience, and vain attempts to get to the footlights as he blinked approvingly at these brilliant toys. It was good to see Mrs. Meg pat him on the back, cuddle the fat legs out of sight, and appease his vain longings with a lump of sugar, till Baby embraced her with a grateful ardor that brought him a round of applause all for his little self. A sound of singing outside disturbs the happy family, and, after a carol in the snowy moonlight, a flock of neighbors troop in with Christmas gifts and greetings. Much by-play made this a lively picture, for Sam's sweetheart hovered round him with a tenderness the Marquise did not show the Baron, and Dolly had a pretty bit under the mistletoe with her rustic adorer who looked so like Ham Peggotty in his cowhide boots, rough jacket, and dark beard and wig, that no one would have recognized Ted but for the long legs, which no extent of leather could disguise. It ended with a homely feast, brought by the guests, and as they sat around the table covered with doughnuts and cheese, pumpkin pie, and other delicacies, Sam rises on his crutches to propose the first toast, and holding up his mug of cider, says, with a salute and a choke in his voice, Mother, God bless her! 
all drink it standing, Dolly with her arm round the old woman's neck, as she hides her happy tears on her daughter's breast, while the irrepressible baby beat rapturously on the table with a spoon, and crowed audibly as the curtain went down. They had it up again in a jiffy to get a last look at the group about that central figure, which was showered with bouquets, to the great delight of the infant Rocius, till a fat rosebud hit him on the nose, and produced the much-dreaded squall, which, fortunately, only added to the fun at that moment. "'Well, that will do for a beginning,' said Beaumont, with a sigh of relief, as the curtain descended for the last time, and the actors scattered to dress for the closing piece. "'As an experiment, it is a success. Now we can venture to begin our great American drama,' answered Mrs. Joe, full of satisfaction and grand ideas for the famous play, which, we may add, she did not write that year, owing to various dramatic events in her own family. The Owl's Dark Marbles closed the entertainment, and, being something new, proved amusing to this very indulgent audience. The gods and goddesses on Parnassus were displayed in full conclave, and, thanks to Mrs. Amy's skill in draping and posing, the white wigs and cotton flannel robes were classically correct and graceful, though sundry modern additions somewhat marred the effect, while adding point to the showman's learned marks. Mr. Lorry was Professor Owlsdark, in cap and gown, and, after a high-flown introduction, he proceeded to exhibit and explain his marbles. The first figure was a stately Minerva, but a second glance produced a laugh, for the words, Woman's Rights, adorned her shield. A scroll bearing the motto, Vote Early and Often, hung from the beak of the owl perched on her lance, and a tiny pestle and mortar ornamented her helmet. Attention was drawn to the firm mouth, the piercing eye, the awe-inspiring brow, of the strong-minded woman of antiquity, and some scathing remarks made upon the degeneracy of her modern sisters, who failed to do their duty. Mercury came next, and was very fine in his airy attitude, though the winged legs quivered, as if it was difficult to keep the lively god in his place. His restless nature was dilated upon, his mischievous freaks alluded to, and a very bad character given to the immortal messenger-boy, which delighted his friends, and caused the marble nose of the victim to curl visibly with scorn, when derisive applause greeted a particularly hard hit. A charming little Hebe stood next, pouring nectar from a silver teapot into a blue china teacup. She also pointed a moral, for the professor explained that the nectar of old was the beverage which cheers, but does not inebriate, and regretted that the excessive devotion of American women to this classic brew proved so harmful, owing to the great development of brain their culture produced. A touch at modern servants, in contrast to this accomplished table-girl, made the statue's cheeks glow under the chalk, 
and brought her a hearty round as the audience recognized Dolly and the smart sobrette. Jove, in all his majesty followed, as he and his wife occupied the central pedestals in the half-circle of immortals. A splendid Jupiter, with hair well set up off the fine brow, ambrosial beard, silver thunderbolts in one hand, and a well-worn ferule in the other. A large stuffed eagle from the museum stood at his feet, and the benign expression of his august countenance showed that he was in a good humor, as well he might be, for he was paid some handsome compliments upon his wise rule, the peaceful state of his kingdom, and the brood of all accomplished palaces that yearly issued from his mighty brain. Cheers greeted this and other pleasant words, and caused the thunderer to bow his thanks, for Jove nods, as every one knows, and flattery wins the heart of gods and men. Mrs. Juno, with her peacocks, darning needle, pen, and cooking spoon, did not get off so easily, for the professor was down on her with all manner of mirth-provoking accusations, criticisms, and insults even. He alluded to her domestic infelicity, her meddlesome disposition, sharp tongue, bad temper, and jealousy, closing, however, with a tribute to her skill in caring for the wounds and settling the quarrels of belligerent heroes, as well as her love for youths in Olympus and on earth. Gales of laughter greeted these hits, varied by hisses from some indignant boys who would not bear, even in joke, any disrespect to dear Mother Bear, who, however, enjoyed it all immensely, as the twinkle in her eye and the irrepressible pucker of her lips betrayed. A jolly Bacchus, astride of his cask, took Vulcan's place, and appeared to be very comfortable with a beer-mug in one hand, a champagne bottle in the other, and a garland of grapes on his curly head. He was the text of a short temperance lecture, aimed directly at a row of smart young gentlemen who lined the walls of the auditorium. George Cole was seen to dodge behind a pillar at one point. Dolly nudged his neighbor at another. And there was laughter all along the line as the professor glared at them through his big glasses, and dragged their bacchanalian orgies to the light, and held them up to scorn. Seeing the execution he had done, the learned man turned to the lovely Diana, who stood as white and still as the plaster stag beside her, with sandals, bow, and crescent, quite perfect, and altogether the best piece of statuary in the show. She was very tenderly treated by the paternal critic, who, merely alluding to her confirmed spinsterhood, fondness for athletic sports, and oracular powers, gave a graceful little exposition of true art, and passed on to the last figure. This was Apollo, in full fig, his curls skillfully arranged to hide a well-whitened patch over the eye, his handsome legs correctly poised, and his gifted fingers, about to draw divine music from the silvered gradirin, 
which was his lyre. His divine attributes were described, as well as his little follies and failings, among which were his weakness for photography and flute-playing, his attempts to run a newspaper, and his fondness for the society of the muses, which latter slap produced giggles and blushes among the girl graduates, and much mirth among the stricken youths, for misery loves company, and after this they began to rally. Then, with a ridiculous conclusion, the professor bowed his thanks, and after several recalls the curtain fell, but not quickly enough to conceal Mercury, wildly waving his liberated legs, Hebe dropping her teapot, Bacchus taking a lovely roll on his barrel, and Mrs. Juno rapping the impertinent owl's dark on the head with Jove's ruler. While the audience filed out to supper in the hall, the stage was a scene of dire confusion as gods and goddesses, farmers and barons, maids and carpenters congratulated one another on the success of their labors. Assuming various costumes, actors and actresses soon joined their guests to sip bounteous draughts of praise with their coffee and cool their modest blushes with ice-cream. Mrs. Meg was a proud and happy woman when Miss Cameron came to her as she sat by Josie, with Demi serving both, and said, so cordially that it was impossible to doubt the sincerity of her welcome words, Mrs. Brooke, I no longer wonder where your children get their talent. I make my compliments to the Baron, and next time you must let me have little Dolly as a pupil when we are at the beach. One can easily imagine how this offer was received, as well as the friendly commendation bestowed by the same kind critic on the work of Beaumont and Fletcher, who hastened to explain that this trifle was only an attempt to make nature and art go hand in hand, with little help from fine writing or imposing scenery. Everybody was in the happiest mood, especially little Dolly, who danced like a will-o'-the-wisp with light-footed Mercury and Apollo as he promenaded with the Marquise on his arm, who seemed to have left her coquetry in the green room with her rouge. When all was over, Mrs. Juno said to Jove, to whose arm she clung as they trudged home along the snowy paths, Fritz, dear, Christmas is a good time for new resolutions, and I've made one never to be impatient or fretful with my beloved husband again. I know I am, though you won't own it, but Laurie's fun had some truth in it, and I felt hit in a tender spot. Henceforth I am a model wife, else I don't deserve the dearest, best man ever born. And being in a dramatic mood, Mrs. Juno tenderly embraced her excellent Jove in the moonlight, to the great amusement of sundry lingerers behind them. So all three plays might be considered successes, and that merry Christmas night a memorable one in the March family, for Demi got an unspoken question answered, Josie's fondest wish was granted, and, thanks to Professor Owl's Dark's jest, Mrs. Joe made Professor Bear's busy life quite a bed of roses by the keeping of her resolution. 
A few days later she had her reward for this burst of virtue in Dan's letter, which set her fears at rest, and made her very happy, though she was unable to tell him so, because he sent her no address. End of chapter 14 Recording by Susie G.